So we're just starting Romans. It's those of you that started memorizing Romans 1, 16 and 17, I'm sure you are excited as God has started revealing things and we are gonna continue in chapter one. We're starting at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up, gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were, filled of, they were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. God, reveal your word to us this morning. Good morning. Today we begin a longer section of Romans, which I've followed others in generally calling the bad news that makes the good news good. A diagnosis is a necessary precursor to a cure. And Romans 1.18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, provides that needed diagnosis. This is not a popular topic this morning, the wrath of God, one that is more and more considered to be inappropriate to talk about in the church today. We don't want to make people feel uncomfortable, do we? We certainly don't want people to not like us. But the message of these 
passages sets the foundation for the good news of the grace alone gospel. That is without an understanding that all of humanity stands guilty and fully deserving of condemnation under the holy wrath of God, there is nothing else at all of the Pauline gospel which will ultimately make sense to us. So we have to get this. We have to understand this total depravity of man in order for any of the rest of what Paul's going to teach us about the gospel to make any sense at all. It's just not going to fit with our humanistic thinking that says what is ultimately good for humans is what is ultimately good. So we got to get this. And so in this case, telling people about how truly desperate their situation is, is actually an act of love. A few friends of mine and I had formed an accountability group. We realized that oftentimes we were presented with opportunities to share the good news of the gospel and, and weren't doing it. And so we were confessing our sin and praying for one another that we would obey the command of God. And when we're given these opportunities, we share the good news of the gospel. And I remember one day, one of my, my closest friends confessing, I shared the gospel today. And we were all like, woohoo. He says, but I have to confess I sinned. I shared about good news, but I didn't tell them the bad news that would make it of any value to them whatsoever. I, care, I feared man and did not fear God. I feared what they would think about me. I feared how I would make them feel, and so I did not tell them that they were sinners. Recently, I read an article which was supposed to be explaining the gospel, but there was no mention at all of sin, and without mention of sin, there was no call for repentance, and with nothing to be saved from, there was no good argument for why a Savior was needed at all. One of the standout statements Uh, really quite terrible. People are no longer asking, she wrote, what must I do to be saved? You know, that just isn't people's question anymore, she argues. But our response is, no kidding. You haven't lovingly shared the bad news, which makes the gospel a sweet necessity. If our gospel doesn't have the wrath of God, our gospel is anemic. Our gospel is not necessary. Now, unbelievers generally perceive that the world is not as it should be. We all kind of have that sense that the world is somehow distorted and disfigured, but they don't understand why. We can only grasp the greatness of God's salvation when we understand the devastation introduced into the world by sinful humanity. And that the world is headed for destruction because the Holy One of Israel is judging the world for its sin. Now, besides setting the negative backdrop for the magnificent gospel of grace, our reading this morning serves another purpose as well. If you remember to our our earliest uh, message in Romans, there's this background of Jewish criticisms of Paul's gospel being expressed in Rome. 
And so he begins to engage a hypothetical Jewish opponent on behalf of the predominantly Gentile Christian church. And so he begins in verses 18 to 32 by composing a devastating critique of the Gentile world, a critique that would and already had been readily endorsed by the Jewish community. In fact, some of these sound very much like intertestamental Jewish writings about the sins of Gentiles. So Paul picks up on that, talking about these, these gross and obvious sins, and, and most Jews took for granted that the Gentiles were outside the realm of God's saving favor, while the Jews were God's elected covenant people. In fact, it was a common belief that the Jewish covenant with God shielded them from His wrath and that they were already saved by virtue of their bloodline. But if their covenant was adequate then they hardly needed to believe that Jesus was the Messiah in order to be part of the people of God. They, they already were by virtue of their birth. And so Paul needs to attack this. And what he does is he sets a trap for his hypothetical opponent. Idolatry, sin, sexual sin, and especially homosexual activity were all regarded by the Jewish people as characteristically Gentile sins. We religious people don't do these things. Only those bad people do those things. And so all while the Jews are nodding and saying amen, he then implicitly indicts them as well in the opening of chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And so our passage this morning is directed against the non-Jewish or Gentile nations. But upon reading chapter 2, the, the Jewish faction would begin to understand that they are not exempt from the charges pressed here in chapter 1. And so in, in typical multi-purpose style, Paul lays the groundwork for the gospel that Romans 3.23 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. While at the same time proving to the Jewish audience that possession of the law and covenant are not sufficient for their salvation, but in order to inherit God's promises, they too must entrust themselves to Jesus as the Messiah. And finally, he also maintains that Jews and Gentiles are equally guilty and share the exact same status before God. Outside of Christ, under wrath. In Christ, the people of God. So by doing so, he removes any basis for superiority from either ethnic group and thus fosters ethnic harmony in the church. So there's this, these two separations in the church, and really we can see them in two ways. There's an ethnic separation, Jew and Gentile, but ultimately there's a religious separation. Those who know, those who grew up in this faith, those who haven't had these former sins, and those who did. And so Gentiles were be call, being called out of these very sins. They, they, at one time, were worshiping idols and walked in sexual immorality of many kinds. And, and the Jewish believers might look down their nose at them and like, we have never defiled ourselves in such a way. And so, Paul, it's so important here that he places everyone uh, under the same condemnation. He paints them all with the same brush and therefore fosters harmony in the church. So, Romans 1.18 will begin, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, this section begins with a four which tells us that Paul is expanding on what he has already been saying in the pre previous verses. 
There he was speaking of how God's righteousness is revealed in salvation by faith. And now as we move to the wrath of God revealed, it is still speaking of the revelation of God's saving righteousness, which exposes the full wickedness of human sin and the depth of God's wrath against it. In other words, we really do need God's saving righteousness because His wrath is being revealed against all people who have sinned against His glory. The main thought is that God is righteous in inflicting His wrath on human beings. And that the expression of God's wrath in righteous judgment is part and parcel with and necessary for His righteous salvation. This theme is picked up again in Romans 9. Again, Romans 9 is going to make no sense to you at all unless you understand the utter condemnation that we deserve as enemies of God, humanity. It's vitally important that we understand that God's wrath is not like human wrath. Corresponding to what we might call a bad temper or rage, but rather it should be defined as the will of God in opposition to evil. One commentator writes, this inflexible resistance of God to evil, his determination to annihilate it in every shape or form, means that man's condition as subject, slave, and instrument of sin is one that can only end in calamity for himself. The natural man is traveling as fast as his two feet will carry him into perdition or judgment. So the relationship of humanity towards God, as we will find in Scripture, is one of hostility. The human world is at war with God. And as James writes, James 4.4, friendship with the world is enmity with God, making oneself an enemy of God. There are 223 references to the wrath of God in the Old Testament, and at least 34 New Testament occurrences, all denoting God's personal indignation towards human sinfulness. There is an older liberal view in which God's wrath was reduced to an inevitable process of cause and effect in a moral universe, that Sinners are merely experiencing the natural consequences of their sin, and this is somehow called the wrath of God. But the evidence for the personal nature of God's wrath in Scripture is so overwhelming that this view is generally and and rightly rejected today. It is not as though people are just getting the natural consequences of their sin. God opposes the wicked, opposes the proud. God's wrath is bound up with the biblical conception of a personal God whose dealings with humankind are attended by an intense moral will. The wrath of God blazes out when that will, and specifically the love that lies behind that will, is opposed by human pride, rebellion, obstinacy, or disloyalty. So this wrath that is being revealed today and in Paul's day is also being stored up, Romans 2.5, for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The thought continues, verse 19, uh, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And see how important this doctrine of creation is to a Christian worldview. Our society and our schools try to force crackpot theories that eliminate God from the picture. But Paul makes it clear that rather than representing some great mystery, creation serves as a witness to who God is. It points us to someone far greater than us to whom we must give our allegiance. As he says, as Paul is likely thinking of Psalm 19, 1-4, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So the heavens and the sky and the day and the night, they're all speaking and their voice is heard. It does not go forth void. God has spoken through his creation and that voice goes out to the end of the earth. God has stitched his greatness into the fabric of the human mind so that his majesty is instinctively recognized when one views the created world. Every creature knows that it is not God and that it was made by another. So this solves that that awkward question about what about those people somewhere that didn't receive the gospel? What about those people that didn't hear about Jesus? The Bible tells us that all humankind stand condemned by virtue of the fact that through creation, God has made it clearly known to them. This helps to explain the apparently universal innate sense of God that anthropologists have noted in cultures around the world. But people do not come to know of God's majesty on their own. As though this knowledge came as a result of critical reasoning or only for those who possessed particularly logical minds. This knowledge of God's lordship and power is not the result of careful deduction and reasoning, but because God has shown it to them, it says. So we can rightly conclude that all people possess knowledge of God, even though it has been repressed and it is not saving them. The revelation through nature doesn't bring salvation. Paul's purpose is to underscore that the knowledge of God obtained through creation is suppressed and therefore distorted. Hence, all people everywhere who turn against God are without excuse because they do know the truth. That's why someone tells me they don't believe in God. I say, oh, that's neat. I don't believe in atheists. John Stott described this godlessness of humanity as the attempt to get rid of God. And since that is impossible the determination to live as though one had indeed succeeded in doing so. <laughs> we, can't, we, we want to get rid of God. We hate God. But when we can't do it, we just decide, well, I'm going to pretend He's not there at all. Through the things God has made, 
every creature possesses the knowledge of God as creator, which is full and sufficient for that creature to worship him rightly. Therefore, all, without exception, have no excuse before God. All are rightly under God's wrath. Saving faith, then, is not a guess or wishful thinking, but embracing the genuine truth in contrast to the lies which seem progressively more plausible to a depraved humanity. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, I've chosen to camp out here for the remainder of our time this morning rather than to finish out the passage because just as Paul is setting up a gotcha moment for the Jewish audience, remember, he's talking about particularly Gentile sins, and they're going to be like, yeah, those, those guys shouldn't be do those bad things. And then he's going to flip it and be like, who are you, O oh man, to judge who do the same things? They, he's kind of setting up the same sort of thing here for us this morning. We are set up by the focus here on overt idolatry and gross sexual sin. When we think about sins like exchanging the glory of, immortal, of the immortal God for images or dishonorable passions and unnatural sexual relationships, it is easy for us to think about them. Someone else needs to hear this message. And verse 21 introduces a theme which Paul will return to again and again, that the root sin that is at the core of humanity's rejection of God is a failure and refusal to glorify Him as God and give Him thanks. A sin of which we, church, are all guilty. Our temptation is to say that we have gone beyond the primitive tendency to worship idols. So this exhortation does not apply to us. We are quick to condemn sins like overt idolatry, adultery, and homosexuality, but elsewhere Paul places particular emphasis on the sin of greed and covetousness by labeling it as idolatry, Colossians 3, 5, and 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Who lies under the wrath of God? Not just those with these obvious sins to us, but those who are impure, have worldly passions, evil desires, and covetousness. We saw in verse 17 that the righteousness of God is rooted in His desire for the glory and honor of His name. He created people to glorify Him. He saves His people because it will bring glory to His name. It is hardly surprising then to see that the essence of sin is a rejection of God's glory and honor. 
The sins listed in this chapter and, and later on here are all transgressions of God's law, particularly the first two of the Ten Commandments. But individual sins all stem from a rejection of God as God, a failure to give Him honor and glory. So when we sin, church, even when it is failing to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, inner thoughts, covetousness, and greed, when we sin, we have failed to acknowledge God as God and give Him thanks. The failure to glorify God and to give God thanks is the root sin that dominates human beings and unleashes God's wrath. Those who do not glorify God are darkened in their understanding, even though they believe themselves to be wise. Giving thanks and praise to God is the fundamental role of the creature. It is our created purpose. And in thankfulness to the Creator, we express and experience the fullness of what it means to be human. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You know, sometimes people are really concerned about finding out what the will of God is, and they, they meet with me and like, Pastor, can you pray for me? I'm just seeking the will of God. I'll tell you what the will of God is. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. But when our imagination of God is distorted, those created to image God are distorted as well. Not only do we come under God's wrath and are cut off from life, but we have altogether become corrupted. There remains only a corrupted humanity, which is restated here in Romans 1, 21 to 23, four ways. They become, became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for created things. When people fail to acknowledge God for who He truly is, they miss out on their life's full purpose and even lose the standard by which they should conduct their lives. A false understanding of God results in a false understanding of what it means to be human. And when you have a misplaced understanding of what it means to be human, you will be deeply unhappy. Nothing will seem to work the way it should. Shouldn't the universe wrap itself around me in its gentle arms and, and take me to where I want to go and rejoice in my strengths and hide my weaknesses? We come to a humanistic form of thinking that says that everything revolves around me or, or people I love rather than that all things revolve around the Creator who created all things for His glory. You see, this is an offensive doctrine. The doctrine of the wrath of God under which all humanity rightly sits is an offensive doctrine, not only because it tells us that God could be angry with us, but it tells us that we are not the center of the universe and that God is still good, although He opposes the human world. 
In fact, to be a believer is to be adopted into God's family and become an enemy of the world. Not that we seek the world's harm, but that the world will oppose us just as it opposed, opposed our Master Jesus Christ. It sets us as at odds, Christian, with the world in which we live. We can no longer be friends, but friendship with the world is enmity with God, enemies with God, at war with God. With every anxiety, every worry, every inordinate desire, we fail to recognize God for who He really is. Every time we fail, Romans 12, 1, to offer our whole selves to God as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, we fail to acknowledge who God is and live accordingly. So much of our focus ends up being on ourselves. Even when it comes to prayer. You know, our prayers are no longer prayers to glorify God and give Him thanks, but they become prayers about all the things that we can think of that would make our lives more easier and, and have more comfort. Even some of the songs Christians sometimes choose to sing, which really celebrate their glory rather than God's glory. In our daily thoughts, are we zealous for the glory of our God? In the way we live our lives, are we complainers, mumblers, or are we those who are constantly giving God thanks throughout the day? You see, there's a gotcha moment here. It's not that Paul's saying these other things are not sin. It's not as though idolatry, overt idolatry, and, and adultery, and homosexuality aren't sin. That, that's, but the point is, we sit here and nod about these things, and then he turns it on you. We must embrace the purpose of this first section of Romans, to bring us battered and bruised to the grace alone gospel, so that we will recognize our desperate need, that we have no righteousness of our own, but must rely wholly on the undeserved favor of our Heavenly Father, who grants us a righteousness in Christ that comes entirely from outside ourselves. that I can look at you, church, and can't see one worse sinner than I. I can't see one person that is more desperate in need to rely wholly on God's grace alone. And that we, as a church, look at a world around us and can't find one person less deserving of God's grace can't see another who has lived somehow a sin that is worse than ours, but that we all rightly sit under the wrath of God except for Christ, work on our behalf. And we must, church, commit ourselves once again to glorify God and give Him thanks, for this is our greatest joy and our created purpose. So to close this morning, I want to leave you with the final exhortation from 1 John, 1 John 5, 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the majesty of your word. 
the foundation that is secure, built on Christ. This is true because you are truth. And so we thank you for the life-giving truth. Father, your word confronts us. And I pray through your spirit convicts us. May we not look in this mirror of your word which reflects upon us poorly and turn away. But God, cause us to wrestle with this, to think upon this deeply. How desperate is our need for you. Forgive us, God, for pointing at others. When we have the sin of failing to acknowledge you for who you really are. And we have the sin of failing to give you thanks. And we thank you. We rejoice this morning because forgiveness is already bought with the precious blood of Christ so that we come with confidence before you knowing that we are already granted this grace. Father, I pray that you would lead us in transformation through the renewing of our mind as your spirit guides us and gives us the ability. Help us to walk zealous for your glory and in great deep gratitude for the good things that you have provided us so that we will be content in all things and love you in response to the great love you have shown us. We ask this for the glory of Jesus. Amen.